Hello everyone, it's October 1st, 2019. So Insight has made some very interesting, well, insights on Mars. I guess that's why they call it that. And we discussed the latest update from Elon on Starship. And no, I have no idea why it's called that. But whatever, it sounds cool. And lift off. And we've created the tower. Welcome to episode 230 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And there's no Dennis again. This time he's sick again, but this time no voice. So Yeah, so he's in the chat. So he claims to be sick, but he might be at a bar on his phone. Who knows? So so did you hear that the uh, the APA just did an, an update and now they are recommending the use of the singular they instead of he, she? I don't even... Okay, so... Yeah, so uh, apastyle.org. Basically... You, when you are writing a publication, you follow a, a style sheet or a, a style guide, like a format guide. And so there's the APA is, is one of the big ones. And it also like covers, um, how you write references. Um, you know, like at the end of a paper, you have all your references and that kind of thing. And so the, the APA is, is one of the big ones and they, they just did a big update. Okay. I didn't um, know that there was actually a, yeah, I didn't know who made that determination. I knew that there yeah. were, you know, conventions, but like yeah. who's in charge of that? And this is the American Psychological Association. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say no, because psychological starts with an S and this is not ASA, but I'm an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> And so it, it's it's the American Psychological Association, but like I wrote APA in biology. So oh okay. yeah, Den- Dennis in the chat. This this new listener named Dennis. Uh, ha 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 joke. Um, Dennis in the chat says uh, astronomy uses the royal we, so using they is less out there. And yeah, the sure. royal we. Uh, yeah, it, I mean we've like as a culture we've mm-hmm, been yeah, yeah. using the singular they mm-hmm. for hundreds of years. It's just, you know, the AP hasn't recognized it. Anyway, that, that was my big uh, banter news for the week. Okay. I thought that was cool. That was interesting because I, <laughs> I honestly, I didn't know this was a, like, I didn't know the APA. I didn't even know it was a thing. Like I, I feel a little bit out of the loop that this is something that people know when we're talking about. Mm. And I never knew the APA was, I mean, I suppose if I'd heard the American Psychological Association, I'd be like, okay, I'm sure that exists. Mm. But I didn't mm-hmm. know, I didn't know they had anything to do with publication mm-hmm. and why it is that they do i'm not entirely sure but i guess someone's got to take up that cause right yep well and and there there are a bunch of them i mean like iso has one ieee has one but like a lot of people just go by uh, ap for news publications and apa for science so are you ready to to actually do this show yeah all right let's talk about space uh well let's talk about this week in spaceflight history so yeah i got a short one this week so our winners this week are Jason Friesen, Cy Kyle, and Coaster Gallery. Um, Coaster Gallery has guessed in before, and um, they have a website, coastergallery.com, I think. And it's just pictures of roller coasters. And I love websites like this. Like, obviously, roller coasters are more mainstream than a lot of collections like this. But, like, there's a guy who has um, a collection of photos of streetlights. And I, I love people who are so fascinated by the design world, like the designed world, like the world of, of designed objects that they devote time to just photographing and cataloging designed objects. I, just, I think it's really cool. So, so sorry, Coaster, I, uh, I went through your website again today because <laughs> I did last time you guessed. And I was like, Ooh, what's that? Just click through and look at photos of small roller coasters. It makes me happy. So this week in spaceflight history, the, the clue was 12 pages and the event is October 1st of 1958. It was the day that NASA began operations. 
So before NASA, uh, everybody probably knows about NACA, not NACA. In my head, it's always NACA, but it's actually an mm -hmm. initialism, not an acronym. So NACA was the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, um, and they had been operating since 1915. And of course, they have done or they, they did um, so many amazing things, but I think most notably, uh, they developed the X-1 and broke the sound barrier. And so as Sputnik flew um, and the space race began, the National Aeronautics and Space Act of 1958 was passed. And in October, uh, NASA began uh, operating. And I, I think it's interesting to note that Explorer 1, which is the U.S.'s first uh, orbiting spacecraft, was launched at the beginning of 1958 during the National Geophysical Year. And that, that was before NASA was a thing, which is, is pretty cool. I don't, I don't think I had put together the fact that they were offset by like nine months. Uh, or eight months, because I think uh, I think Explorer One was February. So um, NASA began, and you know when NASA started, it was NASA. It took a little bit to turn that into uh, an acronym. But NASA absorbed basically everything that the NAC had, NACA had, including their their budget and everything, but also. Uh, Langley, Ames, and Lewis, which is now Glenn, um, these these three major NASA centers uh, started as NACA uh, centers, and um, so the the clue was twelve pages. the uh, The National Aeronautics and Space Act of 1958 was twelve pages long, and that'll be linked in the show notes uh, if you want to read it. It's very boring because it reads like any legislative act. There are so many, it, it, it seems like, you know, you'd want to say, here's what NASA's going to do. And instead it's like a bunch of party the first part kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's not like, a declaration of any. Right, know. it's the how, not the why. Mm -hmm. It's kind of boring, but there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history. Nice short one. Cool. Um, and then I have a clue for next week. So next week in 2000, sometimes a good explosion is exactly what you need. So that's a fairly recent one, which I like these yeah. because it's it seems, I don't know, like you'd think it'd be easier because it was more recent, but often they're right. harder. Uh-huh, because uh, there are more things happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah, so ju just like this week, um, all of our winners all explained why 12 pages was the clue. In this case, you can't just guess the event, you also have to tell me why the clue is what it is. It's not super hard, but I want to let you know that's how you get full credit on this one. So next week in 2000, sometimes a good explosion is exactly what you need. Well, I can say that I don't know, but uh, all right, listeners, if you know, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So first up in the news, uh, Insight scientists present three new discoveries. So I guess the Insight lander is doing some really interesting stuff. Yeah. The first one has to do with a pulsating, wobbling magnetic field. Yeah. Well, so all of these are all magnetometer discoveries, right? Mm -hmm. We, you know, we've seen some uh, seismic discoveries and, you know, we're still working on that darn mole. Um, new, there's an update at the end of this. We're going to talk about the mole. But these are all magnet discoveries. Yeah, which is weird because I don't think of I don't think of Mars as having well, Mars does not have a yeah. magnetic field, right? So. It does. It does. It's just uh I could be wrong. We're gonna see if Dennis corrects me on this one. Um, but it's based in the crust, not in the core. Yeah, so. yeah, got it right. Okay. <laughs> and uh and so here's something that I learned. Uh Dennis said it's called the leftover B field. So I was like, what the heck is a B field? 
a B field is just a magnetic field. B is just a sign for magnetic. Mm, uh, okay. So, <laughs> so if you want to sound really cool and you want to sound like a geologist, call it the B field, not the magnetic field. But anyway, so yeah, like you said, um, Mars's uh, B field pulsates and kind of wobbles. And there are a couple of causes, but I think primarily it's um, currents in the ionosphere cause it to wobble and, and do some kind of weird things. But what's really, really, really cool, I'm going to read a direct quote from this paper that'll be linked in the show notes. Um, During nighttime conditions near midnight local time, long pulsation trains are occasionally detected in the magnetic field. These can last as long as two hours and have wave periods of longer than one minute. These waves are strongest in the north direction and weakest vertically. So... On Mars, at midnight, the magnetic field wobbles. So, <laughs> how cool is that? <laughs> so that's, that's, so that's cool, so cool. So I'm just trying to put up, put all this together. So basically, we're not we're talking about not like a dynamic magnetic field in the sense that you know there's no core, there's no active core. So this is basically right. just like this is just the crust, as you said, and it's basically just been magnetized, right? Like yeah. that's what we're talking about. But this is like a planet-wide magnetic field because my first yeah. thought was that this is just – you know how like on the moon I think that there are like these little localized areas of magnetism? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but this is but this is not that. This is like right. some kind so of the, big – As I understand it, the moon never had a magnetic field. But since Mars did back when its core was still molten, it was able to align all of the magnetic particles in the crust in a particular direction. And so as the like – dynamo in the core shut down the other like the paramagnetic i think it's paramagnetic like the the permanent magnets mm-hmm. um, are all aligned in the same way and they kind of have this residual uh, magnetism the same thing happens on earth that's how we know that earth's magnetic field has switched a couple of times mm-hmm. because as you look into the past you see magnetic particles aligned in different directions as that part of the crust solidified. And so Earth also has, you know, residual crust magnetic fields. Um, and sometimes they're, they're very strong. Sometimes the local magnetic field can overwhelm everything else. Um, but on Mars, that's all they have. I guess it takes an instrument like this to pick this up because, I mean, I'm thinking this must be a very weak magnetic field, right? Yeah, it can be observed from orbit. In fact, Maeve, one of the things that MAVEN does is it, it's looking at the magnetic field from orbit. Um, Dennis in the chat points out that this is the first magnetometer that's ever been on the surface. Um, and not only is it a magnetometer, but it's a very fancy magnetometer that actually can detect flux in three different directions. So they're able to say the waves are strongest in the north direction and weakest vertically because they can actually see that happening. But David, I would let, I don't know if you know the answer to this. I have a really good guess. Nobody, nobody knows the answer, but I'd like to hear if you have heard the same guess that I've heard okay. about why the magnetic field vibrates at midnight. Is it midnight or just on the night side? No, it, it's at midnight local time. So I guess I guess start with what signifies midnight local time. The only thing I can I can think of is that the sun is on the exact opposite side of the planet. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that yeah. has to have something to do with it. Yeah. yeah. But uh right. I still don't know what. Yeah. Well, so so the the thought is that you know, uh, magnetic fields aren't spherical when they're close to the sun. They they mm-hmm. stream out almost like a teardrop. Yeah. Is it okay? So is it that the sun's the solar radiation is kind of like buffeting, sort of? You know, kind of yeah. Like causing... Oh, oh, like a um, like turbulence. Turbulence. There you go. That's yeah. A that's word. really interesting. Uh, I I don't know if that's the case. I I think it's more that 
um, the magnetic field higher up um, gets strung out in one direction. And so there's uh, a certain length that can vibrate in a way that, that it can't when it's closer to the surface. Um, and so as that tail passes overhead, it, it causes um, either resonances or just perturbs the, the local magnetic field. But yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's got something to do with the solar wind and the sun being on the opposite side of the planet. How cool huh. is that? Is that, that, is that not so cool in a planet that we think of as magnetically dead? Um, we get to see this effect. Ah, oof. Yeah. Although it's kind of depressing that it's not enough of a magnetic field to have Mars keep an atmosphere because that's kind of what, you know, we would want, but there's just not enough of it there. Yeah, exactly. So if future Martian colonists want a magnetic field, maybe they just need to magnetize the crust, you know? (laughs) I think that's a tall order. Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh I mean that that's like uh what's what's that movie where they tunnel down to explode a nuclear bomb at the core of the earth? oh the core <laughs> Oh yeah yeah, yeah yeah the core I mean that that's kind of the yeah the you know and and that clearly wouldn't have worked but like we're kind of talking on the core level Okay so the the second discovery that was announced is that there's an enhanced magnetic field at Insight's location and th- this is less of a surprising thing um because you know you have the surface and since it's a residual field um it's not going to be perfectly uniform I mean the earth's magnetic field isn't perfectly uniform but there's going to be less um continuity and so they they basically see at at Insight's location it's off by I think like 30 degrees from the planetary average and that, that just makes sense. You know, you get lumps and twists at the surface that by the time they get up to orbital altitude, that's all evened out and it, it looks, um, uh, it looks nice. But Dennis points out that the, these local lumps tell you how long Mars has had a significant magnetic field. So if the enhanced field is coming from rocks closer to the surface, that means that younger rocks have had that imprinting from the from the core's magnetic field, which means that the the global field survived longer. And if those if the field is coming from rocks lower in the crust, then it means that it was from an older time. And by the time the newer surface rocks formed, there was wasn't enough of a magnetic field to get them all pointed in the right direction. So um, that that's pretty cool to see some lumps and twists near the surface. And then the the third is really the cool thing. And this one is a little iffy. There there's a big extrapolation here that I'm not sure of, and Dennis isn't sure of it either. And so you know we're two of the smartest people on the planet. Ha ha ha. But they use the magnetometer to to measure. Uh, the conductivity of rocks nearby. That's just something that you can do with a magnetometer. And when they look into the core, when they look subsurface, they see a large layer of uh, electrically conductive rock. And it's so electrically conductive that it suggests that it's a layer of wet rock, which means that there could be a liquid water reservoir underneath Insight. And somehow they've made the jump to suggesting that it could be a planet-wide layer of wet sand. And uh, my guess is they are probably looking at orbital data and somehow extrapolating. Um, I'm just not sure. I don't... I. I looked, Dennis looked, we couldn't find how they came to that conclusion. But how exciting would it be if Mars was warm enough below the surface 
that there was actually a planet-wide layer of the remains of its oceans. I'm sure that it is warm enough. It's just a question of how far down and if there's yeah. water. But if you go far enough well, down, then yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so um, they don't have a really good fix on how deep it is, but they're saying that it's like 60, 65 miles deep at the maximum. And I think that just has to do with uh, um, the sensitivity of the magnetometer. This, you know, we're seeing this strength. This is about how deep it could be possibly. But I think that's really exciting because that is a really good place to potentially have microbial life. So it's a max depth of 60 odd miles, but what's the minimum? I, I don't know. I'm not saying they don't know. I'm saying I don't know. Mm -hmm. It seems like too much to hope that it's a planet-wide layer yeah. of wet sand, you know? Yeah, it seems like a big one, doesn't it? Yeah. And and so what if what if it is close enough to the surface or has been close enough to the surface that there's enough radiation getting through to cause regular mutations to drive evolution? Yeah, I don't suppose it would have to have the radiation in order for that to happen, but... You we're we're pretty sure that you need like electrical potentials to be able to um, form amino acids. Um, so we, we think that amino acids are tied to lightning in the atmosphere. But I mean, if you're not going to do that, like maybe there's a way to use radiation to either form these chemicals or to... Yeah, to drive evolution once you have reproducing life forms. Well, wouldn't there be, I don't know if it's strong enough, but wouldn't there be enough radiation just like within the crust, there has to be some amount of radioactivity just from the elements. And in fact, I believe that that's what produces the heat, or though I suppose there's also, you know, like the remnant heat of the formation of the planet, but at least with... And I don't know how scientists, well, I guess it's pretty easy to make the determination. But yeah, there's a certain amount of heat generated just from all the various radioactive elements that are down in the Earth's crust. Yeah. So I imagine it's the same thing on Mars. And so there is some radiation. I don't know if it's enough, but there's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it, it's 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 fascinating. I mean, like, yeah. and Dennis in the chat is, is geeking out. He says, you know, maybe life formed early in Mars's history. And now we have extremophiles that have survived in the subsurface water right. layers. All, all this, you know, all this to say, let, let's be clear. There's probably not life there. We're going to be very lucky if there is. There probably isn't, but maybe there is. You know, it's kind of like Europa. Probably not life, but maybe there is. What if? But the problem is, is that with, in this example, it's hard to confirm that, right? Because how do you get down that far? I mean, yeah. you can send something into yeah. the oceans of Europa or whatever, but this yeah. is, yeah, really far down uh -huh. there. Yeah, closer to Earth, but farther from reach. Yeah. This is not the core. We don't have a, whatever, that mm -hmm. big vehicle that was made of like unobtainium or something. Isn't that what it was called? Remember that? <laughs> I don't That's know. That's such a weird, weird I never movie. watched that movie because I, I can't take it. Yeah, I saw it, but it was not good. Um, okay. And then we had one other uh, inside update that doesn't have to do with the magnetometer. And this is the mole. And so there'll be a photo in the show notes. But basically, we got some photos back from uh, the instrument deployment camera that show... Um, both the um, the scoop like on top of the mole basically and then also like a scoop print if that makes sense near the near the mole's location and so it, it looks like they're trying to pack the sand in around the mole to get it uh, jump started again so that's exciting from the image it looks like they're trying to pack the sand around it but the mm -hmm. mole is still at a pretty extreme angle can they do anything yeah. about that no no you think they could try to prop it back up but i don't know i mean that i would kind of expect them to try but i mean even if they get it in, going in at an angle like so be it 
Like that's better than it sitting on the surface. Yeah. And then uh, I'm going to kind of drive us forward here. So did you, so next up is the Starship update. Did you watch this live? Uh, yes, I did. I was upset. Yeah. Cause I like, I stopped what I was doing. I tuned uh-huh. in. So I'm really grumpy. So I'm going to let you do this one so that I can hide my grumpiness. I think I can keep you engaged because, okay. because if, because if nothing else, I, I have questions because you were so grumpy, which I can understand some <laughs> of why that is because you know how when you watch these presentations, uh, there's going to be a lot of Elon talking about stuff that we don't really need to hear. That's not why we tuned in. Um, and he still does that. And I'm not sure why. I guess it's just for the general public or something. But yeah, it's a good point that, you know, he sometimes kind of like wastes time a little bit. But the important thing is that there were like obviously some changes that have been made and those weren't entirely confirmed. And I like to have the confirmation. And that's the big thing because we have been looking at photos on Twitter. And even last week we were talking about how many fins does the Starship have? And we, you know, we weren't sure. And now we know they are opposed to each other. So this is two fins and then it has landing legs, like six of them, I think. Six. Yeah. That, that was, that was a big confirmation with six. And also it was really cool. Um, I hadn't seen the, the leg, uh, nacelles until yesterday. They actually have six bumps on the outside mm-hmm. near the aft, uh, on the aft skirt. So that, that's kind of cool. Well, what's interesting is that when you look at all the previous iterations of, uh, well, I guess like BFR or whatever we call it, it's changed quite a bit now, you know, like it just keeps changing and changing and changing. And now it doesn't really look anything like it did in the beginning, you know, like mm-hmm. it's actually very different now. And in fact, I was looking at photos and I had forgotten at some point, and I'm almost getting a little bit confused here because I can't keep track of it all. But I think the very first concept, was it not that it looked kind of like a giant stretched out dragon too? Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And that's how and, it looked. And it had, uh, it had like three little, like almost like winglet. I mean, it was just like three yeah. little strips kind of down the side and it looked very elegant. It's sometimes it's hard to remember that the first version that they showed off wasn't the Tintin rocket. But that first version, didn't that, I guess it was the booster that had that little body wing. Do you remember that? Yeah. No, I don't think that was the booster. I think that was Starship. It had like a flat belly almost. I thought, see, I thought the flat belly was the first thing that they had presented. See, I'm just getting it confused already. I can't even remember, but it's just gone through so many design changes and now it looks even more different. I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out what it looks more like. I mean, it still looks like a squid. It's It still has those canards, which are very important, obviously. And I guess we could talk about that a little bit. One question that was... I think, I don't know if it was confirmed, is it how exactly do those things move? Do they just pitch forward and back, you know, which I think that that's all they do. No, they, but they, they don't... flap. They flap up oh, and they, down. Oh, they flap as well. Okay. Yeah. Because I thought that they were there just to keep the nose down or pitch it up. I mean, yeah. That, I mean, that is what they do, but they do it by flapping up and down like like bird's wings, just like the, the big body flaps. I suppose, yeah, that's true, but it seems that it's easier. Well, I guess it depends on the angle of reentry because... Like thinking back to how I was watching this presentation done about Skylon because it has, you know, like a very similar type Mm. of a setup there in the front of the nose. And Mm. it it actually pitches them forward and that's to keep the nose down just because you have the center of pressure and the center of gravity. They're not exactly as close as you would like. So Mm. they have to keep so they have to keep the nose down. So you pitch those things forward and that kind of you know like digs into the air and that's its purpose. But I don't think that they flap at all because Right. They just don't need it. But I mean, you know, that's yeah. a different vehicle. They 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 probably pitch up and down on Skylon. I mean, just that's how canards are generally used. Mm-hmm. And it it's important that Skylon kind of flies with like a, a angle of attack 
works so that, well, I don't want to get into aerodynamics because I'm going to um, say something stupid. But for uh, Starship, what's important to keep in mind is that these are not lifting surfaces. Elon confirmed that they'll provide a little bit of lift um, in the upper atmosphere just so that you can slow your descent a little bit and and stay in the the higher atmosphere for a little bit. But even uh, Biconic... Uh, capsules like Dragon and Soyuz. Well, Soyuz isn't biconic, uh, and Dra Dragon isn't biconic either. Um, but uh, Soyuz. Uh, so, for instance, um, the Apollo command module was biconic. Um, but these these capsule type reentry profiles, they also use lift, and that's why when you hear like Soyuz doing a ballistic reentry, it's bad because they're they're not getting any lift as they're going through the atmosphere, so they get into the deeper atmosphere faster. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Starship will also do that, but it could do that just with body lift effects. Um, like capsules do, which don't have wings. So these wings will uh, almost certainly increase the lift a little bit. But once it's into the deepest part of the atmosphere, they are not there to provide lift. Um, there, there's not air flowing across the surface. There's air slamming into the bottom of it, and they're there to provide drag um, just to increase the ballistic coefficient. Well, see, that's kind of what I thought, except that I thought that they were there, if anything, to generate a downward force, not, you know, lift, but exactly the opposite, because you have the heavy engines on the back, and so, you know, it kind of wants to, you know, tilt upwards, you know? And so I thought that they were there to kind of keep the nose down so that it could flatten out and then just kind of, like, fall down. Uh, because at that point, they're not generating lift at all, right? They're, but yeah, like right. you said, they're generating drag. Well, and, and remember, if you, if you lift the, if you put the body flaps, the, the aft flaps all the way down or all the way perfectly perpendicular to your travel instead of folded backwards, if you put them down mm -hmm. and then you lift the nose ones up, you will have more drag on the bottom of the spacecraft and less on the top and you can control your pitch that way. And mm -hmm. then if you do the right, the right ones and not the left ones, then you can control your role. So yes, they will do that. They will control the pitch of the vehicle, but not like canards would. So I guess this was put in a tweet a couple of days ago that they're moving some of the tankage to the nose because they're trying to keep the nose down. But I, I don't remember any details, to be honest with you. Um, but I found that interesting because that means that previously when we watched those animations of... Uh, the Starship landing on Mars, I think it was, it kind of remained vertical the whole time, you know, like, I mean, it was a little bit pitched forward, but it pretty much stayed vertical. But now it's going to come down, I guess, for the final part of the descent, it's going to kind of come down belly first. Yeah, it, it rotates to vertical much later. And in one of the in one of the animations, it said 33 meters per second is and it was stable. So it looks like that like 33 meters per second might be its terminal velocity, which is insane to me. That can't be right. What's that in miles per hour? <laughs> That's oh, that's slow. That's like 75 miles an hour. I was going to I was going to guess 100, but that was <laughs> a little off. Uh, off by 25%. So like, yeah, like 70, 75 miles an hour. That's nothing. Well, it is big and it, and it is mostly empty at that point. Like I don't have any intuition there, so I couldn't say. Like I don't know if that sounds right or not. Okay, so the terminal velocity of Dragon is something like 100 meters per second on Earth. And in this one you said it was 33? 33. <laughs> so it's got to be something else. Maybe that was just horizontal velocity or something. Because there's no way that giant spacecraft, even if it doesn't have a lot of fuel left in its tanks, can float, I mean, positively float like a feather down at 33 meters per second. Which you said was, what, 75 miles an hour? Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, that is pretty slow. I mean, all things considered. <laughs> my, my, my car, I've got a giant work van 
my car can do that on the highway without much effort. <laughs> just one more mystery, I suppose. <laughs> this is one of the reasons I didn't want to talk about this very much, because it's just like, I, I just walked away from that presentation just baffled. It is nonetheless something to talk about, because it's actually good to ask these questions, because um, if nothing else, then for at least my own personal clarification, and I'm guessing, you know, the listeners, or maybe if not clarification, then at least we can ask some questions that we now know we need answers to. So going back to the presentation, one interesting thing that he said was that they want to move away from cold gas thrusters and they actually want to use full-on Methalux engines mm -hmm. to maneuver the Starship, which I thought which was makes, really... Yeah, it makes sense. I guess just so long as they can be done without too much additional weight because it seems like that's... I, that yeah. that just sounds more massive than these little cold gas thrusters, although you do get better specific impulse, but still. Better specific impulse and unified propellants. But plumbing, I guess, if you have to move it, because if not, then mm -hmm. you're putting it in separate tanks, which defeats the whole purpose, because that's what you're doing yep. with the nitrogen. Yeah, exactly. But I guess the reason for that, he had stated, was because like in order for the Starship to get back to vertical, it, it actually has to push forward a little bit, which actually pushes it past its target, and so it has to you know make a correction to get back vertical again, or to push it itself back on course, I suppose you could say. Yeah. Because when you watch the animation, yeah, it has to gimbal the engines as much as it can to get the bottom underneath the top, and then it has mm -hmm. to push back a little bit and mm -hmm. then straighten out. So this would fix that. Well, I mean, you can, you can, you can quote-unquote fix it just by including in your trajectory but yeah right well that, that's kind of what i was thinking it was like why not just do that yeah but i mean that's it's a way to minimize that deflection which i mean i guess is what you mean by fix it yeah but i mean how much it's, of it's a penalty it. in fuel is that like i don't I, I don't know it doesn't seem like that big of a deal you know it's it's hard to even call it a penalty if it's like allowing you to land <laughs> i mean if you have to make a correction back yeah to vertical yeah. like if you push past it yeah so yeah that's one more little change and then i think the things that were actually the coolest for me was just getting a better timeline now this is elon timeline so who can right. say but you know what's weird is that he seemed to he seemed a lot more maybe i'm being naive here but he seemed a lot more confident like he really seemed to be selling it this time to me and i'm not sure why but i was like okay i, I kind of believe you um he just seemed very confident that they could you know move through these vehicles like at a rapid pace i don't know if you got that impression but i, I don't know uh, i mean it, you know having a giant rocket standing behind you definitely lends credibility to your words mm -hmm. uh in a way that we like literally haven't he hasn't talked standing in front of a starship before because there's never been a starship before. It might be just that he was talking about getting Mark II completed within the next couple of months, Mark III and three months, Mark Mark IV and four or five months. And yeah. so like even if he's off by a factor Back of three, that's yeah. that's still pretty soon. So how long can it actually be? So I thought that, I, I thought that was interesting. And, and it seems that he had said something about having made some huge leaps in the manufacturing process. I'm not sure exactly what those are, but uh, the one thing that he did say, and I think that this does answer a big question, is how like are they going to build this thing's hull? They're not going to use sheets. They'll use, I guess, a series of sheets, and then they'll just wrap the whole thing around to a nine-meter diameter, and then they'll just weld it shut. So that seems like a better idea than having to put these plates in various places, yeah. which looks crinkly. I mean, I, did, I don't know if it has to look that way, like if you're using plates and having to bolt them together. But Can I, can I uh, do a mm -hmm. quick self-TCM? Um, it's 66 meters per second, not 33. Okay. So I actually pasted a link in Discord, and that's time-stamped to the animation I was thinking about. Oh, okay. Uh, and then they go above that as they're rotating down or rotating up to vertical. They get up to like 70-something meters per second. Oh, they actually, it looks like they actually peaked at 80, and that's what the engine's firing. But, I mean, it still goes to show that, like, the cross-section of this thing 
really adds a lot of a lot of drag versus it plunging butt first. If the maximum is 80 meters per second, that's still, I just looked at it here, that's uh, 178 miles per hour, which, you know, is not bad for a terminal velocity. Mm -hmm. Especially for something this freaking huge. It's, it's not about the size, it's just about the area yeah. too. Yeah, the, the ballistic coefficient. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. But it just, it seems unintuitive. Although if you, I guess if you watched a blimp fall, you'd be like, oh, that makes sense. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay. All right, you got me there. So the timeline, yeah, Mark II, within the next couple of months, Mark 3, then Mark 4, within four or five months. And they want to reach orbit in about six months or less. And he seems confident because he even said it that, you know, that's probably accurate within a few months. And again, this is what surprises me because like he seems so confident saying that. So probably like six to eight months, we could see a starship in orbit, which I did not I anticipate, to be honest. I don't think so. You don't think so? Okay. No. What's your guess then? For orbit, geez, it's got to be at least a year. I mean, that's what I would guess, but, this, but he seems confident. I don't know. There's, there's a rocket on. sitting right there. I mean, it's... Well, that thing could never make it. I mean, that doesn't look like it can make it to space. <laughs> it doesn't look space-worthy to me. I know, I know, but they, they built it, though. This is the first time that they built it. But that's not hard to do. It's just, will it fly? Which, they, I mean, they are going to fly. Yeah, that's the one that they're going to fly, right? To 20 kilometers? Uh, that's the Mark, yeah, Mark, Mark 1. Mark. Yeah. But before they get to orbit, he wants to get up to a, a production level of like one Raptor every couple of days and ideally have 100 ready to use before they make the attempt. And I'm not sure why, but I suppose just because you want to have them. I don't know. Right now, they're just making about three or four per month. So they're definitely going to have to ramp up production quite a bit. And I don't, I don't think they're going to get up to... What was the maximum they said? Uh, every every couple of days? Yeah. That seems a bit much. But if you are launching these things regularly, sure. But uh, they always, or Elon always overestimates yeah. Oh, yeah. The their, their manufacturing capabilities for everything. I mean, Teslas, Merlin Especially engines. Tesla. Yeah, that's it's okay. I mean. And I do kind of wonder why he wants to because... How many of these are they planning on? The whole idea is reuse. And he had said at yeah. one point that, you know, they're going to be making lots of them. And I'm like, well, why? And I'm and I'm talking well, about, you know, both the Starship and the booster. So why yeah. lots of them? Like, how many do you need? Yeah. So the thing is, if, if you're sending these things out to Mars, it doesn't matter if they're reusable. They're out of reach for what what's the there and back return time is like a year and a half, two years. Mm -hmm. if if you're not not really pushing it so i mean it's not throwing them away obviously but like if they're leaving earth orbit we're not going to see very many of them going to the moon sure that that mm -hmm. in that case you know you can call them reusable but if they're going to mars it you they might as well not be so right well that's true but i don't see that actually happening for quite yeah. some time you know so that, exactly yeah. but if if that's where we're at then that's why you would need to crank out a bunch of engines it's because you're throwing them into in, at another planet and not getting them <laughs> yeah. back for a while. Right. But otherwise, yeah. So I don't know why he said it, because I thought there was some other more near-term reason for having to have such high engine production. But if it's to go to Mars, well, I mean, let's be honest, Elon, that's not going to happen, like, yeah, you know, exactly. in the next year or so. Right. That That's why I'm, I'm saying I don't, they, they don't have a reason to. So why would they get their production yeah. that fast? Uh, Sam in the chat's got a really good point. Even if they have an orbital ship ready tomorrow, I don't think that they could launch by the end of the year because the GSE isn't there. I think that's a really good point. Don't underestimate how long, you know, avionics take. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, yeah. Well, or, there's you, a lot. You, no, not, not 
not avionics. Um, what's it called? Yeah, I mean all all the all the tankage and everything. Although they um, we did see them uh, delivering two two giant or or taking de- taking delivery or two giant uh, oxygen tanks leaving the factory or something. Infrastructure. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. A- avionics boy, I'm a, you know where my mind is. They yeah, it's the infrastructure. Yeah, well, he had said that they do plan on vastly expanding their facilities there, but uh, that'll take some time too. One other thing he kind of just kind of brushed off again was that life support is not going to be a big deal, and I just don't believe that. Um, now I, I'm not an expert on life support. I don't know much about it, but it seems like yeah. it's really difficult to maintain good life support because just looking at the international space station uh that's a constant maintenance process it seems and now we're talking about like moving dozens or hundreds of people how are you going to keep like that requires some fairly significant hardware but he seems to think that that's just gonna i don't know that it's not that big of a deal but i think it kind of is and he but he had at least acknowledged that it has to be regenerative because you can't go on a two-year trip to mars in any other way you can't throw away co2 filters the whole way yeah Um. (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean, as a species, we've done s- limited regenerative life support uh, on station, and that, that's super important. But yeah, I agree. Short and sweet, we have three this week, and I'm going to read Dennis's, I guess you could say. Well, actually, no, you're going to do that one, Ben. I'm going to read <laughs> Dennis's. De- Dennis offered to dial in using text-to-speech like... Um, the late great Stephen Hawking, um, but we're we're just gonna go ahead and use a human. I mean, I'm almost tempted to try that up just because I think it would be cool. He, you know, he he actually um, they wanted to like give him a custom voice, and yeah. he's like, no, this is my voice. Yeah, yeah, he kind of just got used to it. Yeah, and it, it's it's I I think that was a good call. I mean, as far as you know, as far as he needs marketing, like that's a good marketing call to like have this right. brand and just interpersonally, like people recognize your voice. Yeah, because if I'd heard any other voice come out of his speech synthesizer I was like that's not him you know that it it just it really would have felt wrong because I'd grown up hearing that one so yeah all right so uh first up NASA awards a long-term contract to Lockheed Martin Uh, NASA has awarded Lockheed Martin a contract for as many as 12 Orion spacecraft this contract should meet NASA's needs into the 2030s initially Lockheed will receive 2.7 billion dollars for Artemis missions 3 4 and 5 with an additional purchase of three more Orions in 2022 for 1.9 billion dollars some savings in cost are anticipated through reuse of various components of previous missions, including the entire Orion crew module that will be reused for Artemis 6. All right, next, uh, Korea Pathfinder Lunar Orbiter has been delayed to 2022. South Korea has delayed the launch of its first lunar mission from December 2020 to July 2022, as the spacecraft has grown beyond its original design weight. While working with test models of the orbiter's hardware, the Korea Aerospace Research Institute, or CARI, uh, found that the launch weight has grown from 550 kilograms to 678 kilograms, which would reduce the amount of propellant and thus the operating life around the moon. After an internal review and consultation with outside experts, the agency has accepted this new weight and will use the delay to redesign mission parameters to accommodate it. And lastly, NEO mission confirmed that NASA is moving forward with what it's calling a near-Earth object surveillance mission. This will be a 50-centimeter telescope positioned at the Earth-Sun L1 point that will be capable of detecting at least 90% of near-Earth asteroids with a minimum diameter of 140 meters. The cost of the mission will be 500 to $600 million and will launch no earlier than 2025. Once in orbit, the telescope is expected to be in operation for 12 years. All right, let's move right along to upcoming spaceflight events. Back to just a couple, but uh, we do have at least one launch of a Long March 4C 
and that's on October 3rd. And that is launching, I guess, an unknown payload, at least according to Launch Library, right? So we don't know what that is. So Earth observation, probably. So it might be some kind of Earth observation payload, but we can't confirm that. This is this is good. Uh, Sam says there's no exact match with previous NOTAM areas. So it, it seems like it might be flying a, a new flight profile. Yeah, not sure about the payload. So that's on October 3rd. The launch window is 1844 UTC through 1910 UTC. So, so 25 minutes approximately. And that's launching from Launch Complex 9 in Taiwan. All right. And then um, we have MS-12 is leaving the International Space Station. There's a change of command ceremony on October the 2nd, which is Wednesday. The change of command ceremony happens at 9.20 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, the hatch closure, um, the coverage starts at 11.45 and then continue, or the hatch closure is actually scheduled for uh, 12.20 a.m. Eastern Time, again on Wednesday. And then we're going to lap over into Thursday. The deorbit and landing is going to happen at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Time is when the coverage begins for the deorbit. I get, okay, they're, they're lumped together as, as is usual. So the deorbit burn is currently scheduled for 6.06 a.m. Eastern Time. And then they're going to land at 5.58 a.m. And so coverage of that will be on NASA TV as always. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So now then we can deorbit the show and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. We'll see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. All right, goodbye, everybody.